basically, if you're struggling with your weight, it's almost certainly not your fault. It's the food industry, it's our environment, it's a million adverts you see every day, subconsciously or consciously. Um, as I said at the beginning, there's more than 100 causes of weight loss, and almost all of them are beyond the control of most people. So number one, don't beat yourself up. Think about your internal conversation that you have with yourself and then think about what you would say to your best friend if your best friend was going through what you're going through now. If it was your best mate, you'd probably say, oh, come on, I've got your back. I'm here for you. I'll help you. I'll go get your healthy food. I'll make sure you clean your cupboards out. I'll clean your cupboards out for you. I'll cook you some food. And yet when it's you going through it, you tell yourself, oh, you're useless. Oh, you're pathetic. Oh, you can't do it. Oh, you've got no willpower. And that's not the conversation you need to have with yourself. You need to be your own best friend. Hello and welcome to the Happy Bear podcast. We're delighted to have you where we want to explore topics to bring more meaning, happiness, joy, fulfillment, curiosity to your day-to-day -day life. Beautiful. Uh, this episode is sponsored by our Happy Shape Challenge, which starts on May the 30th. It's four weeks to hold your hand and support you to reach your happy shape. What does happy shape mean, Dave? Uh, it's essentially over the years, we've had so many people ask us, will you create a course to help me to lose weight and gain health? And so we partnered up with a wonderful doctor, Dr. Sue, who you're going to listen to now shortly. And Rosie Martin is a dietitian, and it's four weeks. We've had more than 10,000 people through it. Does it work? Yeah, it really does. It gets great results. And it's really about making people healthy and helping them form the habits. So My, that must cost loads of money, Dave. That sounds like quite the promise. Oh, great question, Steve. No, it's actually, we're discounting it to 79 euro from 150 euro. So Only 79 euro? One time special offer. Yeah. So it should be cool. Starting May the 30th. Uh, details on our website if you want to learn more. Ta-da! Da -da. Oh, add over. Thank you, sponsorship over. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Thank you for our kind sponsor. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Sponsorship Company. Uh, speaking of online courses, uh, when's the last time, have you guys ever done any kind of online like courses or learning? or Yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been talking about starting the artist way for about like three years now. I think I even copied you and then now it's been about two years where I haven't started. Yeah, I read the intro on the plane recently. So, and then I met someone this morning who was 10 weeks into it and was telling me about how, how incredible their yeah. life has changed and how they're floating and they're such a creative genius. But I've also heard people read it or do it and then they just haven't finished it because it's quite a big undertaking. Oh yeah, it's a, what is The Artist by David Flynn? Uh, it's a book that's meant to like help you connect more to your creativity and ultimately it's about writing loads of pages like morning pages where you like journal and you write down and all sorts of stuff for about an hour a day. The commitment is meant to be an hour a day, which that was the bit that kind of put me off. And then the other thing is meant meant to make creative dates, a date yeah. with yourself to kind of be creative. Well, that well, that sounds quite fun because uh, I think yeah. it was like you can even just go to the cinema with yourself kind of thing. Yeah, to do something or, yeah. or, or <laughs> go, excuse to do things you like. Or go Watch sit in a park bench and like listen to music or whatever your kind yeah. of thing is. It's about connecting with yourself. I, I haven't made it past well, the first four pages. It's like yeah. when I, I was chatting to Sam, our actor friend, uh, the other day, and he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, what, what's your plan for tomorrow or whatever? And he was like, oh, I've got to do a bit of work or whatever. And he's like, funny thing about me and work, though, because it's about acting, my work is I have to go and ponder in a walk for some time for creativity to come to me. I was like, wow, your work is so different to or mine. Or got to watch movies. Yeah. I just have to watch those movies. <laughs> 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 One thing I, I like, okay, this is maybe not an online course, but... Growing up when I was back on the dating scene, I, astrology was a great way to kind of get the chit chat going. Um, and I always really enjoyed it. And I know it's way out there and it's, for many people it's hippy dippy, but I found lots of, you know, relevance in it, especially now being a father and just even a friend of ours, Dennis Holly, is an astrologer. And I remember getting the full like astrology chart done for each of the kids. I remember sitting down like when they were born and getting it done and kind of, it was only last night I kind of said I was going to sit down this week and I took out the charts and just kind of read through the notes and I was like, 
that's pretty bang on, you know, the way in terms of characters. Now, May's 11, Theo's 9, and uh, Ned is 5, and it's pretty spot on. Like, and this, they were done when they were, when they were born, I got the Dennis to do it. So I'm sitting down when I'm Friday, so I'm kind of excited about that. I used to love that. You bought me a thing to go to Astro Dennis. Did you like it? Was, I you loved go? it, but it was like, who doesn't love an hour of just getting to talk about themselves? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone's favorite topic. Yeah. yeah, that's why I think it's the best present for everyone, because yeah. most people love being told, well, this is why you're wonderful. And this is a couple of possible challenges which you have. You know, yeah, it's like, oh, we've got a lot of Mars and a lot of like... Um, Jupiter conjuncting yeah. with like, the moon. And you're <laughs> so graceful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, all this type of thing. I know, but then uh, when the star signs shifted, someone told me I wasn't a Leo anymore and I was not having that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was when they brought it into the bonus I one. think you're Leo in capitals. Yeah, 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 definitely. Leo. <laughs> Leo squared. But, but in terms of your online courses, I was curious about breath work. Since, oh, yeah. since chatting with James Nestor, breath work, I've become much more aware of that and I've downloaded a few apps and I've started doing work on that and I thought geez maybe I'd even do a course in it like I was thinking about it which is huge for me because I don't really generally I did think a- is it you don't think well, no, I, no, I do think, but like, I, uh, I guess there's Sorry. so much, my, I feel my life is quite full and to take something else on, I didn't. I didn't want to be really, really, really shiny it. and have a big promise. Like. Or do what Steve does and pretends it's a part of work. Well, like it's bean to bar chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I, I was funny. I was walking around over there and the amount of tools and bags of beans and stuff. <laughs> I was like, no one heard that. <laughs> it's like, I can't help you with the Facebook ads. I've got Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. This week's podcast is with, with our friend, the wonderful Dr. Sue Keneally. Yeah, Sue's brilliant. We created a Happy Shape Challenge with Sue. We met her about five years ago at a plant-based doctor's conference in London. And we got the pleasure to talk and to talk after Michael Greger. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and we had lunch with Sue and we were talking all about the idea of, because over the years people had kind of said to us, oh, what about like, can you create a course like, like, cause we had a course on heart, helping people, happy heart course. And we had other ones and people kept kind of saying, I really just want to lose weight. Like I'm not, not quite, I'm really interested in health, but weight is the big thing. And so we talked with Dr. Sue and she specialized in weight loss and we've worked with her over the last four years and she's brilliant. So this week's episode is all about helping you practical, tactical you know, and deep myth busting in terms of weight loss and all the practical things that you can do in terms and of And sustaining that. it. Sustaining it, yeah, because it's just, Sue deals with people on a daily basis in her own clinic. And she even talks about all the different trends and fads, like if anyone heard of the 5-2 diet that went around for a while and all these things. And time-restricted eating, is there yeah. evidence to support it? Is there not? Dun, 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 all in store. Stay tuned. Yes, it's going to be epic. Okay, without further ado, we give you the wonderful... Round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Sue Keneally. Right, well, we'll start this show. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. Sue Keneally. Yeah. Hey, hi, guys. Lovely to see you. Thanks for having me here today. It's brilliant. Very excited. We're <laughs> delighted. Delighted. What a wonderful day. way to start the day. Uh, okay, so Sue, straight in there. For anyone who doesn't know you, you're a doctor that specializes kind of in weight management or whatnot. Like, what does that mean or what does, what is, like, tell us about your background or your qualifications or whatnot, just so people kind of go, okay, I really need to listen to this. Listen to Dr. Sue. Okay, I would love to. Thank you so much. So, um, I'm, by qualification, I'm a GP. 
and that's how I spend most of my time. But I also work as one of my jobs in a specialist weight loss clinic run by the NHS here in the UK. Um, and the other thing that I do is I'm a certified lifestyle physician. So that means that I um, have a job where I teach patients about the benefits of healthy lifestyle for, for all sorts of reasons, um, including weight and, and that kind of thing, but not just that. So really, I'm, I'm all about uh, weight, lifestyle. And when I have to, I work as a GP too. Gee, cool. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, OK, well, even just to paint the picture, like what are the current like obesity stats in the UK? Or like, Because I read something that in the US it was something like one in three people were up. Now, I, I don't know if I'm correct at all. I read some kind of stat like that. What are the current stats in terms of obesity? Are they in the rise? Are they on the flatlining? Are we getting skinnier as a race? What's going on? What is what's what's the landscape like? Oh, wouldn't it be fantastic if we were getting skinnier as a race? Um, so the landscape is, it's not quite the same as it is in the US. We're always about 10 years behind the US with everything when it comes to health. Um, so we don't have the same obesity rates as them. Um, it's about 25%, I think now, and it's obviously increasing. It's, it's not decreasing. And we're going to have to have major shifts in our culture if we wanted to decrease as a nation. So about 20 to 25% at the moment. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. And what do you see? What do you see as the main core? Like, because as we were just me and Steve were just chatting there, and we were discussing, like, is it is it different between men and women and their weight and their stages of life? Is that kind of does that play a difference in terms of our weight and our body mass index and our shapes and all this? Um, to a certain extent, I mean, we know famously that women often struggle to lose weight um, in comparison with men. I, I see so um, many often couples, but very often women on their own. And they say, do you know what? My, my partner and I, we started on the same diet on the same day and he's lost 20 pounds, 10 kilos. And I've lost nothing. What's going on here? And it's because the female body will resist weight loss more strongly than the male body will. As for um, actually having the excess weight in the first place, I'm not too sure of the up-to-date details. I think it's broadly similar. There might be small differences, um, but, but they'd be fairly small. Wow. wow. And is that the female body largely, I think you'd mentioned there earlier, that it kind of wants to, in the off chance that it might get pregnant, it wants to have those extra calories. Is that the main reason? Exactly. Yeah. There's a reason why we call them childbearing hips. Absolutely. Your, your body loves to, or if you're a woman, your body loves to store fat, particularly on your hips, because that's a fuel tank for a baby. Um, <laughs> so it, if a woman tries to lose weight and her brain's thinking, well, hang on, this lady might get pregnant one day, I'd better hang on to this. Um, they're... Um, mechanisms that help them lose weight will fight a lot more strongly than men's do often. Not and, always, and are, but quite often. And are there certain stages like, cause you know, the way in a woman's life cycle, you know, are there certain stages where metabolism factors or when someone, when a woman's perimenopausal or when it's menopausal, like are there certain stages where it's easier or harder or more difficult? Cause I'd imagine the hormonal cycle hormones change over that period between 20 and 60, you know, yeah, absolutely. So um, it's fairly true that age matters. So I always smile and think, oh, isn't it sweet when I see articles um, on the Internet saying how to lose weight when you're 30. And I think, wow, you have no idea what's coming. Um, try being 50. That's when it starts to be a real problem for most people. Um, yeah, the perimenopause is when it's a, a big problem. And um, after childbirth, you know, most women put on weight when they're pregnant. And there are good reasons why they should. Um, but they are supposed to lose it when they breastfeed. Um, and very often that just doesn't happen. So it tends to be after the birth of a child um, and going through the perimenopause that I see the most problems with, with women in general. 
And is that because the, like, what are the main reasons? Is that because the metabolism slows down or is that because the hormones shift or is that because movement reduces or is it a whole plethora of circumstances? It, possibly the latter. I think the latter, yeah. Uh, anything to do with weight gain is um, generally very complicated. Um, we know from, I think, the foresight study, which was, it's years old now, but they looked at it again a couple of years ago and they concluded it's still the same. They identified over 100 different causes of weight gain um, and they said the majority of them were outside of the control of most people, that it's about our society, it's about the way we live life, and it's not about people just being greedy and overeating. That's not how it works at all. Um, so the reasons why you might gain weight at a particular stage in life can be due to hormones, like it is with the perimenopause, but more often than that, it's a hundred different things all working together. Wow. wow. And what and then, do you see? Then in terms of, say, just uh, like in, in terms of any men, is it is it similar that as men get older, their hormones change and making it easier for them to gain weight? Or is it quite consistent then with a man? Because a man doesn't necessarily go through menopause or uh, the men arc or all these um, phases. Well, I think testosterone reduces. Yeah, testosterone reduces. Does this impact in weight gain or weight? Yeah, exactly. It tends to be more steady with men. They tend to just gradually gain it throughout life if they're going to. Okay. Wow. Just yeah. with, age, with age, they get bigger. Yeah, that, I, I think that's the main cause. As you say, I think the testosterone reducing generally as they get older has a part to play in it. But I, I don't see many bumps along the road with, with the men that I chat to in, in my weight clinic. It, it tends to be, oh, I just gradually have put on weight. Sometimes it's more to do with like a big life trauma, like they've had a bereavement or they've gone through a divorce or they've lost a job that they loved or something like that. And then you tend to see a big hike in their weight. Um, but other than that, it tends to be just gradually throughout life that it just gradually creeps up and then suddenly there it is. OK, so we're so we're, we seem to as a species, we're getting bigger and there's so many factors that that kind of dictate it. And what do you see like in your clinic on a daily basis? Like what do you kind of observe as the main like if you were to kind of try to summarize it? I know, obviously, there's you said there's 100 factors, but there's probably like the L80-20 rule. There must be five of them or so that really predicate a lot of kind of weight gain. And what are the ones that you see consistently? Like, OK, these are the ones which I consistently see that are really impacting weight gain. OK, the ones that impact weight gain the most in my clinic that I see um, is people who have um, a, a tendency to um, do emotional eating. So they're eating for any reason that isn't hunger. Um, so that'll just be because they're in pain or they're depressed or they're tired or they're stressed. Lots of different reasons like that. Um, ultimately leads to the same thing, which is that food that tends to make you gain weight is really tasty and often very addictive and it's very easy to overeat it. And so any of those things can generally lead somebody to have an unhealthy relationship with food and to just eat more than they should or more than their body needs let's not use the word should i don't like the word should um but more than their body needs and um, just because the, the food is having a true pharmacological effect like a drug just making them feel better that's the usual reason wow. Wow. So it's kind of like helping some kind of numb kind of negative emo emotions that they don't that aren't as pleasant and the, the foods help them numb that are kind of it's escapism really yeah, absolutely. Um, they've done the, the research. It genuinely does act like a drug. They're not making it up. When somebody says I'm addicted to sugar, I'm addicted to salt, they probably are. It really is a true effect. So um, getting somebody to change their relationship with food is very much like working with someone who's um, using some other substance to make themselves feel good. The only difference, of course, is let's take it to extremes. If I'm dealing with a heroin addict, 
um, I can tell them to stop using heroin and I can support them to do that. Um, you can't tell someone who's addicted to food to stop eating. So that's a particularly unique problem that we have when it comes to weight loss, because you have to tell people to keep using the substance that they've been using, but just to try and use it differently. And that's so hard. And we know that when people struggle, it's genuinely not their fault. It's their brain kicking in and going, no, I'm going to resist this because I like what you're doing and I don't want you to stop. Wow. Because I've certainly like I've certainly read stats in the papers where they say, oh, it's for the first time in human history, more people are dying from excess rather than starvation. You know, and I don't know if it's true or not, but yet th these kind of anecdotes implying that we're, you know, we are getting larger and larger and, you know, our frames aren't getting, you know, much bigger. And I just wondered, like, what are the wh when someone comes into you? So man, woman, whatever they come into you and obviously they kind of they're it's a weight loss clinic, so they want to lose weight. So what are the what what are the main kind of tactics which you kind of like if someone comes in, how would you start it and what would you kind of how does it proceed? Well, we always start as a team we and just have a general chat with the individual and just say, you know, what, what have you tried before? Because the time they, by the time they get to me, um, they've tried a lot of things before, usually. So, you know, what did you try before? How did it go? Um, and why is it important to you? Because people always think that their reason for wanting to lose weight is the obvious one. Um, and everybody's must be more or less the same as theirs. But I've asked that question a thousand times now, and I've probably had 1,200 different answers. You know, it's wow. um, it's unique to everybody. So it's really about finding out why. Um, and what I always say to them is, there are people walking around in your community, um, they're the same height as you, they probably weigh more than you, and yet they never go to their doctor and say, say hey, can you refer me to the weight clinic? They just carry on with their lives um, and get on with it. Um, and they never think about coming to us. So what's brought you to our clinic? What's going on here? And as I say, I, I've had a unique answer every time I've asked that question. And it's fascinating to hear people's stories. And then really it's about finding out where their barriers are. It tends to be either that, um, as I say, that they've just got themselves addicted to food and they need some help with that. Or it could be that they just need to think differently about certain parts of the diet or um, maybe they're less active than they need to be. Now, that's less important, really, when it comes to, to losing weight. It's usually more about what you eat. Um, but again, it's so personal and so individualized that it's very difficult to um, say, well, for each patient, I do this every time. It's just about chatting to them and getting to know them and seeing what their problems are. And then on an individual basis, trying to help them sort it out. So it's almost like a therapist, in, like there's the therapeutic element to it you know, in that you've got to understand their emotional, where they're coming from and what's going on. And then in terms of, in terms of the food, like, cause obviously, you know, food must have a massive factor to play with it. Like, how do you kind of support people in, and what do you recommend yeah, in terms of food? Even further than that, Sue, I wonder, like when most people think of weight loss, they immediately think of, oh, I'm going to join a gym or I'm going to buy new shoes or I'm going to, you know, suddenly start exercising more. Whereas, you know, there's this old adage or old expression that kind of abs are made in the kitchen or whatever, you know, your shape is largely made in the kitchen. I just wonder, is there kind of a rule of thumb in terms of weighting, like as in, you know, food has a four times greater impact than movement in terms of your or shape not, or what or what not is or is there any rule of thumb regarding that yeah there is and um, i think overall the evidence suggests that it's about 70 30 so and that's 70 for diet and 30 percent for exercise um now if you're trying to lose weight i strongly recommend that you do exercise because it does have a small effect it, it, they've done some more research recently and they they said on, in summary it was probably only a couple of kilos but um 
exercise is so important for keeping off the weight that you've lost. I don't know if you've ever spoken to someone, they said, oh, it was great. You know, I lost 50 kilos a couple of years ago. And then I, I took my eye off the ball and within a couple of months, it was all back on. Uh, and there are good physiological reasons for that. Your, your body, again, is trying to resist you getting rid of energy that it thinks you might need one day. Um, and exercise is a really good way of stopping that from happening because you keep burning off the calories. And so it's not so great for losing weight, but maintaining weight loss, it's brilliant. And of course, if you have got weight problems, it's likely that you might, not necessarily, but you might have diabetes or hypertension or arthritis or any number of um, conditions like that. And exercise helps with lots of those too. So it helps to keep you fitter while you're losing the weight. So um, anyway, it's a win, but diet is far more important than exercise. Okay, so 70-30 diet, 30% exercise, 70% down to what you eat on a daily basis. And in terms of exercise, you know, I've heard this word resting metabolic rate. And I believe that that's the, the, the amount of calories you burn when you're seated. Like, and if, say, for example, in a, how I understand it, maybe you can validate if this is correct or not. So say in a 100 meter Olympic sprinter is sitting here and say it's a male one and they burn a lot of calories because they've got a high metabolism. Whereas if, for example, I was largely over, like, you know, I was overweight, I would burn calories a lot slower. And does exercise kind of, it keeps our resting metabolic rate lower doesn't is that i'm getting a bit i'm confusing myself here but i think you probably get the sentiment yeah no it increases your metabolic rate your resting metabolic rate so if you do a good bout of exercise your metabolic rate will increase um probably for the next 24 hours after you've done that and probably um it'll be slightly higher overall generally um if you've converted muscle fat to muscle muscle is more metabolically active than fat is so that will probably increase it slightly. Of course, the other side of that coin is if you are heavier, doing any movement uses more calories because there's more of you to move and it takes more effort. Um, wow. So that there are pros and cons. Overall, I, I think I'd rather be an Olympic sprinter than someone um, who is living with obesity in terms of my health. Um, but yeah, if you weigh more, you do burn more when you actually do the exercise. So um, that's a big plus because people often say that they say, well, what's the point? You know, my metabolic rate is slow. And I try and encourage them and say, well, actually, you, you've got a, an advantage here um, that when you do the exercise, you might actually burn more than somebody who is lean. So please go do it. Wow. Please. And is it true that the more lean muscle you have, the quicker your metabolism as in like, for example, the Olympic sprinter naturally will have more muscle than someone who's obese. And as a result, their, their resting metabolic rate is quicker. So as in, if I'm overweight and I suddenly start developing more muscle, my metabolism will speed up and hence my ability to burn calories will be Is that quicker. correct or is? Oh, it's complicated. Um, so certainly true that having more muscle will increase your metabolic rate. Um, but if you're trying to lose weight, especially if you try and lose quickly, then one of the things your body does to try and counteract that is to slow your metabolic rate down to stop you losing the fat because they think your body thinks you might need it, you know, when, when the next famine comes because your body doesn't know that you're living in an environment where there's not going to be a famine. So yes, the exercise might increase your metabolic rate, but if you're also trying to lose weight, um, your metabolic rate will probably slow down. Um, so uh, it's complicated. It depends on your age, your gender, your general level of fitness. There's so many things that affect this. So it's nice to talk about in theory, um, but what you experience in practice um, is widely different depending on who you talk to. And I, I don't mean experts, I mean patients. You know, Some of them will say exercise is the only way for me and other people say doesn't make any difference at all. And that there's probably a million different reasons why that's the case. 
Wow. Okay. So, so it really does sound complex. Okay. Well, okay. So exercise is one part. That's the 30% of the equation and 70% of the equation is food. So what I know, like you're a life, you, you're a doctor of lifestyle medicine. I think that's what you're something like that, that you're referred to it. And I'm just wondering in terms of food, like what do you prescribe and what are the best foods to eat for maintaining a healthy weight, for losing weight, for energy, for health? Like, and what do you typically prescribe to people who come into the weight loss clinic? Okay. Um, again, it needs to be quite individual because people have their own ideas about what will work for them and what they like to eat. And don't forget, eating is a very social thing. So they have to eat in the context of their family or their support network. So there's a lot to consider. Um, the other distinction to make is that in my NHS weight loss clinic, um, I have a dietitian, and if I start giving out dietary advice, they start getting a bit grumpy with me because um, that's kind of their job. And it's not good to be getting advice from too many people when you're on a journey. So they asked me to try and keep out of it to some extent. Um, but um, I do see patients in my own clinic as well, which is a, a private venture. Uh, and there um, I talk to them about what they like to eat and then we take it from there. But essentially my view and what I do myself is the more plants you can eat, the better it is. Okay. Because um, one of the biggest things that helps you lose weight or lots of things that help you lose weight, there's um, energy density, which is how much energy there is, how many calories there are um, in any volume of food so per mouthful, per pound, per kilo, whatever of food. Um, and the lower the energy density, um, the better it is because um, you can eat things that have very few calories in them per pound or per mouthful, and you can fill up very quickly on them for not very many calories. Whereas if you eat things that have got a lot of energy density, um, these would be things like um, uh, fats, oils, um, the, the sweet goods, the sweet treats, and they have a lot of calories per volume. And so you can fill your stomach up on those and you'll have you'd have eaten quite a lot more calories than you would have done if you were just eating the, the simple plants, the um, leaves, berries, fruits, veggies, legumes, that kind of thing. So I tell them to major a lot on that. Um, also because the plants contain a lot of fiber, which is great for you in many ways, helps you feel fuller for longer. And of course, plant foods tend to contain a lot of water and water is one of the other things that keeps you nice and full. So I tell them to eat as many plant foods as they can. A lot of them, when they come to see me, do want to eat meat and animal products as well. Um, so that's not the diet that I recommend. Um, as you know, I eat a vegan diet myself, and that's the one that I would like to recommend to everybody. But if somebody does come to me and say, look, I, I want to carry on eating meat, I sort of say, well, it's your choice. If that's what you want to do, I can work with you. I recommend a vegan diet, um, but I, I can work with you. But I try and get them to eat as many plants as possible, for sure. So, so it's really about focusing on whole plant foods because they're high in fiber and they're high in water. Those were the two main things. And low in energy density. Energy density, you said there, if I hope I understood this correctly, that it's the amount of calories per mouthful, per kilo, per any unit of measurement. It's the amount of calories. That, that's correct. And what is like, when we're talking about calories, like how general consensus out here across society, and my understanding it is, a calorie is the amount of embodied energy in a piece of food. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a specific diagnosis for it. It's, it's the amount of... I, I think it started out as the amount of energy required to heat a, a certain volume of water by a certain amount. I can't remember the exact details. It's just a measure of energy. So um, people need typically between 1,800 and 2,500 calories a day, depending on um, 
age, weight, gender, level of activity, that kind of thing. So it's extremely variable. But the good thing about um, a plant-based diet is that you don't necessarily need to count calories. I know a lot of people do, and a lot of people that I work with still say, oh, no, I, I want you to work out my calorie requirement, and I want you to tell me how many to eat. Um, and I can do that if they want me to. Um, but you really don't have to. If you're basing your diet on low energy plant foods, so as I said, um, the leaves, the veggies, fruits, berries, legumes, um, certain amount of nuts and seeds, but keeping those to more moderate. Um, if you're basing your diet mainly on those, you don't need to count calories um, because your body will count the calories for you and it'll naturally regulate it so that you take in the right amount of energy or calories. Um, but of course, if you want to count calories, there's no reason why you can't. If, if you like the security of the numbers, you can do it. Yeah, I just think it's amazing like how sophisticated our bodies are that they can literally get in when, within kind of 10, 20 calories of what the what are recommended daily intake and that's just based on intuition and yet we almost seem to kind of go beyond our, our internal intuition and want to logically write it down and calculate it and just verify is my body actually really correct and that intelligent it's, it's it can often seem kind of quite ironic but yet m many of us in our society do it that we're kind of almost we almost overrule our intuition that our body does have this remarkable capability to get. And, and I was just going to say, I remember, I remember when we first started the Happy Shape Club, maybe four years ago or five, whenever it was, when we first started, we kind of launched it as a calorie, it was a program with calories because we thought it kind of, it validated it. it people were secure, the meal plans were all calorie counted and all the recipes were calorie counted. And then after a while, we just realized that it was causing a lot of stress. Like people were wondering, they were stressing about, did I get the consider did I calculate it correctly and am I getting enough or am I not getting enough and it, it, it found like it created more stress so we took away the calories and focused on focusing on eating whole plant foods and you know and that was the message from you and Rosie and obviously our role was to create the recipes that were naturally low in energy density which was high in whole plant foods and that was it you know and it, it, it's been hugely effective you know. Yeah, exactly. I kind of celebrated the day we threw away the calculator for the calories because um, um, I, I thought it was a nice idea. I agreed with you. I think people like the security of, you know, oh, I have to count calories and um, or I can choose to count calories. Um, but I, I love the idea that we just threw it out the window and went, you don't need to. It's fine. And of course, people can do that on their own. It's not part of the course. But if you want to join the Happy Shape Club and you want to count calories because you like the numbers, then of course you can. But it's not something that we encourage particularly because there's no need to. Yeah, totally agree. And is 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 a, is a calorie is it like that? I, that's the question which I was going to ask because with calorie counting, it implies that all calories are equal. And I wondered, like you know, you know, I've heard lots of analogies out there, and I wonder what your experience is. Like, is a is a kilo of carrots the same as a kilo of ice cream? Like in terms of the calories, you know, like or, or maybe that's not good, but a thousand calories of carrots versus a thousand cal calories of ice cream is it is it the same? Or what what are your views in terms of that? Oh, no, they're worlds apart. This is the problem. This is why calorie counting has a part to play, but it's not the main event at all. Um, people always say that to me, you know, if you're eating a banana, you might just eat chocolate because they've both got sugar in. And it's just not true. So um, unprocessed whole food plants will do things like that. They'll change your epigenetics. So your epigenetics are or epigenetics is um, that the study of what happens to your genes. So um Lots of our genes are fixed. You know, we're going to be a certain height. We're going to have a certain eye color. We're going to have a certain hair color. There's not much we can do about those things. Um, but our um, genes, a lot of them can be negotiated with. Um, and lots of the genes that regulate weight, um, you can switch 
ones that tend to make you gain weight on or off and ones that tend to make you lose weight on or off. And the best way to switch on all the good ones that help you lose the weight you don't want to have um, are switched on massively um, by plant foods. So um, a, a thousand calories of ice cream is going to probably switch on all the, the genes that tend, make you tend to gain weight. Whereas uh, a thousand calories of carrots, I love this analogy, this is great. Um, a thousand calories of carrots, um, apart from probably being quite boring, um, would tend to switch on um, all the good genes that help you lose weight. Um, carrots will have effects. I'm not, I'm not sure about specifically carrots, so I better not say that, but a plant food diet, a plant based diet in general, um, will have effects on your brain. So it makes your appetite system regulate itself more effectively. Um, you know, we were saying about how your body, if you leave it alone, will regulate your food intake to within 10, 20 calories a day. That's completely true. Um, not if you start feeding it ice cream. OK, and two things about that um, with ice cream that will tend to have the epigenetic effects where the genes that favor weight gain will tend to get switched on. And also ice cream will do crazy things to the pleasure center in your brain. Now, every one of us has a pleasure center. So whether it's stimulated by food or exercise or drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or gambling or anything else, we all have one. And ice cream is a major stimulator of um, the pleasure center. And that's one of the things that makes us overeat. And I know we just said earlier about, oh, you can override things by doing calorie counting and so on. The easiest way to override your natural intuitive eating system is to feed it processed foods like ice cream, um, because that triggers your pleasure center massively. And then the pleasure circuit in your brain just completely overrides your appetite and just says, no, I'm going to do more of this. This is great. Um, so that's uh, one thing. And then gut bugs, you know, our microbiome, that little um, zoo in your poo, your bacteria that live in your intestine. Um, they love um, plant foods. So um, there are different species in your colon and um, they tend to flourish or die back depending on what you eat. And there are some that, again, are associated with weight gain. There are some that are associated with weight loss. Um, and plant foods bring out all the ones that want to help you lose weight. So it's about, as we said, the energy density. It's about um, the epigenetics. It's about your gut bugs. It's about a million different things. But yeah, absolutely. Plant foods are your friends when you're trying to lose weight, for sure. I love yeah, that's yeah. a great summary. Uh, I, I, just one other little bit on the topic of, say, we could eat within 10 to 20 calories per day. Is, is it true that we kind of eat a similar weight of food every day that kind of almost like it's intuitively, it's, a, it's in us that we're kind of naturally drawn to just consume the same weight of food as well as calories and that if we can eat foods that are lower in energy density, it just means we're fuller, we get the same weight but less calories and it's, that's kind of one of the keys to weight management. Yeah, absolutely. The studies for that have all been done and it's been shown to be relatively true that so maybe I don't eat the same weight as food as you do um, because we're different ages, different genders, different weights, different activity levels. Um, but I will tend to eat the same weight of food every day and you will tend to eat the same weight of food every day. Um, so it's absolutely right. Uh, if you're eating, so I think it's three to five pounds, so a couple of kilos. So if you're eating a couple of kilos of carrots, um, versus a couple of kilos of ice cream, you can easily see where that starts to stack up. So yeah, absolutely. That's another reason why energy density is so important. If you're eating a couple of kilos of very low energy dense food, um, 
you can even get to the point where you don't eat enough. I've known a, a few people who've turned vegan go, why do I feel so tired all the time? And it's because they've gone, you know, really keen and, and decided to be super healthy vegans. And they're genuinely not eating enough food because they've just started eating vegetables the whole time. So you then have to tell them to um, add foods in and to maybe increase their energy density because it's perfectly possible to do on a plant-based diet that you, um, I mean, of course, but we all, eat enough generally but when you're starting out you're not quite sure where to head with it all it is possible to not even fill yourself up so um but please don't worry about that it's easy enough to fix yeah 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 i saw that even even on the calories and the ice cream one i saw that uh i saw i was listening to someone and they were saying that like carrots they'll fill your tummy up like so say if it's a kilo of carrots they'll fill your tummy up i don't know how many times but because the fiber like you probably won't actually be able to eat a kilo of carrots at one go because you'll just get fed up chewing, like your jaw will actually get sore and it could take you two hours or something. Whereas ice cream, you know, you could probably eat it all in 20 minutes if you had to, or, you know, it might be a take you half an hour if you were going at it, but like, you know, natural biological things get in the way, inhibit us. That was something that I had read, which I thought was kind of funny about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you only have to talk to competitive eaters to, to see how they get their calories in. You know, it's it's about getting the dense food in really, really quickly. And within about 20 minutes, because it's at the 20 minute mark that your body starts to catch up with the fact that you are eating and your stomach starts sending messages to the brain saying, hey, you know, this person's eating now. You need to start making them stop soon because they're going to have eaten enough soon. Um, so that's why whenever you see a competitive eater, they're always like, got to get it in within 20 minutes. Um, uh, that, because then that's when the brain's going to kick in and start slowing everything down and filling them up. And I suppose, uh, I suppose that that makes fiber super relevant because if someone's like if 20 minutes is it, until your kind of hormones kick in to say that you're full or whatnot, fiber, how I understand it is it's the it's the kind of matter, it's the fibrous kind of body of the fruits and vegetables and plant foods. And it uh, it fills you up and it slows down like you've got to chew it. So like the yeah. difference between like and maybe that brings you back up to that question of kind of going okay you said that there's a huge difference between plant-based foods and processed foods and processed foods obviously are lower in fiber could you talk about the main differences between the two of them and you know why you have a preference towards plant foods and whole plant foods i imagine okay so the question is whole foods whole plant foods versus processed foods is that right yeah, yeah. if i may say so even plant-based processed foods because there's a lot of vegan ready meals out there now which is great um but so a couple of things about it if something is processed so just to explain what processed means it, it just means um it's a food product rather than just natural food so it, think of your ready meals and that kind of thing or your, your sweet treats that come in packages and, and that kind of business um they tend to have a much higher energy density um, but also there's a thing called caloric availability, which is how much food, you, how much energy or how many calories you get out of the food. So say you eat 400 calories of what we're talking about carrots today. Let's talk about carrots. You eat 400 calories of carrots or any plant food. Um, it's hard work to digest it. I mean, one of the other things we mentioned the chewing. And while I think about it, I must say that the act of actually chewing is one of the things that sends a message to your brain to, to, to tell you to slow down because you're obviously eating and it's one of the big signals that tells your brain to start um, reducing your appetite. So chewing is great, whereas with a, a processed meal or a ready meal, maybe it's quite sloppy a lot of the time, so you don't really need to chew. So you're losing that signal. Um, and then if you eat a, a, a great big pile of 
um, unprocessed plant foods. Um, there's a lot of work at digestion there. It's hard for your body to break it all down. It takes a lot of calories to actually process it all. Um, and also it's difficult to actually physically extract all the calories from the food. So the calories might be in there, but you may, may not be able to actually get to them just because you can't digest it as effectively. Now, that might have been a problem thousands of years ago um, when food was scarce and we were worried about survival. But in our environment, that actually works for us. Whereas if you eat a processed ready meal, um, a lot of the work is done for you already. The calories are readily available. They're easily absorbed. It's all broken down already. Your body's going to do very little work. So you're using far fewer calories um, in order to break down the food. And when you've done the little amount of work required, it's all there and it all just goes straight in. Um, you don't lose any of it. Um, so those are the main differences. And of course, processed foods, easier to overeat because they taste lovely and they're designed to be that way. Wow, oh, addictive. Yeah. Uh, I wonder about intuitive eating, Sue. So intuitive eating is something that's kind of recently become popular and the kind of idea is to follow your intuition. How does one manage that when we're biologically hardwired that you walk past a bakery and you smell croissants and you can smell that melted butter and that white flour caramelized and my intuition goes, I want a croissant. Oh my God, I, I want a croissant. Crap. I want a croissant. I, I just wonder, one, what do you think about intuitive eating? And two, how do you draw boundaries around kind of our mammal brain that prefers fat and sugar and processed foods? And is, is intuitive, and maybe I'll add a third question to that, is intuitive eating more relevant if we lived in hunter-gatherer times rather than in the current urban environment where we live, where it's, you know, a proliferation of processed foods? Yeah. That's the one. Yeah, I'll do that in reverse order. Yes. Um, I think intuitive eating is great if you're deciding which fruits and veggies to have and which whole grains to have and that kind of thing. But if your intuition is telling you to eat a pizza or a croissant, then it's probably been hijacked by something somewhere. So I wouldn't trust it. Um, but if, if it's just about which healthy choice to make, I think you can trust it a fair amount. Now, you asked me a few questions at once there. Um, oh, yeah, we got so excited. There, Excuse us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what else did you want to talk about there? Because you asked me some great stuff and I've lost my thread. Yeah, yeah, it was about one intuitive eating, one understanding. I, I think you answered it really well and that trust your intuition if it's healthy food and if it's craving pizza versus carrot, you know, you're possibly not necessarily trusting your intuition. You should just stick with the carrot. Uh, and then the other. But there was no, there was there was one. Now, this is a total other one. So it's not repeating. It's kind of going. We were at an event last week and uh, there was a doctor there, a sleep doctor. And he was really interesting, super lovely German man. And he was talking about the idea that nowadays as the diet, as our diet has changed and there's a lot more processed foods, he was saying there's a lot less chewing. Like as you, you made the analogy of carrots, like there's a lot of fiber in carrots, there's a lot of chewing like you spend and it releases hormones and makes you feel full. But he was saying that because we're eating such processed foods, our jaws, the shape of our mouths is actually changing and yeah, and he was saying and our, our palates and our breathing and so many different things is changing over the last 50 years because of the foods that we're eating, um, that there's a proliferation of processed foods. And I don't know if, judging for your face, this might be a hearsay, which I'm saying, but uh, yeah, no, I'm curious about that. Is that just a, a kind of a headline out of a newspaper to get people's attention or is there truth in that at all? Okay, I haven't heard that before. So let me just give you an opinion. Um, and I would think super processed foods have really only been available for the last 40 or 50 years. Um, so 
just without having read any of the evidence for this, because it is the first time I've heard of it, I would think it's unlikely just because it takes more than one or two generations for things like the shape of jaws to change. So I think that's unlikely. Um, Good one. He could have meant something else, you know, maybe around, around the mechanics and, and how we move our mouths and that kind of thing. Maybe that's changed, but I don't think the actual bone structure will have changed just yet. I mean, give it a few hundred years, I'm sure it will. Um, but I don't think it would have changed in 50 years. Okay, good one. Thank you for that. Okay, uh, one, thing, one thing which we, which I'd love to talk about, which I think is very, it's very common and widespread. And I don't know if you use this in your clinics or whatnot. And we often get asked this all the time in Happy Shape. And I'm kind of wondering, what are your thoughts in terms of time-restricted eating? Or, you know, people call it, I don't know, there's other words. Intermittent for, fasting. Intermittent fasting or those kind of things. Like, is there evidence to support it? Because I know I've got certain friends that like, they'll eat over eight hour windows and they'll have 16 hour fast days and they'll be all about it and they'll say their metabolism is speeded up and they sleep better and all sorts of things. And I wonder, is this just anecdotal or is there evidence to kind of back this up? And what do you, what do you use this in a, in your clinic? Okay. Um, yes, there's evidence. Um, I'm a fan of time-restricted eating. So it really depends. I, I always tell my kids the answer to any question, just about any question is, it depends. Um, <laughs> so um, in my NHS clinic where the dietitians are giving my patients the dietary advice, they're not fans of time-restricted eating because they say the evidence overwhelmingly says that eating small regular meals throughout the day um, is the most efficient way to make sure that you don't start binge eating. Um, so they don't like it. Um, and I completely respect that. But I think for the right person at the right time in the right situation, it, it can be really effective. Um, so if someone comes into my private clinic and says, look, I, I want to do this, um, then I, I totally go with it on an individual basis. So anyway, time-restricted eating. I, I remember you guys once said to me, so if a 12-hour window isn't as good as a 10-hour window and a 10-hour window isn't as good as an 8-hour window, shouldn't we all just be eating once a day? And uh, we talked about that once a couple of years ago. Um, I've found the evidence for that now. There's no real benefit to going less than eight hours a day. So um, if anyone's not following what we're talking about, we're talking about people who choose to limit their food intake to a particular time of day. So um, in, the say, in a certain 12 hour period and then not eat anything for the other 12 hours of the day or eat for 10 hours a day and not eat for the other 14. And the evidence says that you can take it down as far as eight hours and then, then fast for the other 16. Beyond that, it's not going to have any particular benefits for weight loss. Um, so there's no point of going down to six hours or four hours. In fact, that's probably detrimental. So um, eight to 12 hours is your sweet spot. And there's evidence for that. Um, and I've got a few patients who've been very happy doing it. Um, I've also got one patient who does um, what she calls dirty fasting, which I've gathered is a new thing, where you try and keep to the eight hour window. Um, but if you're, say, starting late in the day, so you're skipping breakfast and hoping to start eating, say, at 2 p.m. and then finish eating at 10 p.m., if you're desperately hungry by about 11 o'clock midday, just have a small snack just to stave off the hunger. And so that's dirty fasting, which is a new thing. I'm not aware of the evidence for that, but I know a lot of people who are fans of it. Um, and then there are other things. You mentioned intermittent fasting, which can be another form. Um, I don't know if people remember the 5-2 diet that hit the media a few years ago and um, was all the rage for a while and a number of people still do it. Um, that's also good. That's where um, you eat 
a normal healthy diet five days a week. And this is where the media got hold of it because they didn't portray it like that. Um, and then on the other two days a week, you limit yourself to, I think it's five to 600 calories if you're a, a woman and I think 800 calories if you're a man, something like that. Um, and of course the media got hold of it and said, oh, you just fast for two days and then eat pizza. Um, and that's not what the book says. That's not what the author ever intended. And if you, you know, I've read the book, I know the author and that wasn't what was intended at all. But that's if you do it the way he intended, um, that can also be um, a pretty healthy way to, to maintain your weight or to lose weight if you need to. Um, the other thing that we talk about is energy restriction, which is, again, a little bit of obsessive calorie counting. So you work out your calorie requirement for your days um, and then consistently eat two to three hundred calories less every day. That's another way of restricting energy intake or calorie intake. Um, I tend to not recommend that one just because it, it then becomes all about calorie counting. And I find it a little bit restrictive and difficult. Um, so, yeah, but in terms of um, if you want to practice intermittent fasting, then yeah, five two um, or time restricted eating. I'm a fan, um, unless you're someone who's prone to binge eating, in which case you probably should avoid it, like the dietitians in my clinic tell you to. Wow, and what do you, what do you think about uh, you know? Because there's the same like, and once again, like I, I imagine you're going to say, well, it depends on the person, because uh, it sounds like things are very personalized and very case specific, which is great because it's you know you know it's going to be more relevant then. But in terms of the weighing scales, you hear there's a whole load of people are all about weighing yourself twice a day and constantly measuring the improvement. And then you've got just as many people on the other side saying, no way, like it's, it, it can be an emotional roller coaster and there's so many other variables to measure, you know, other ones or softer ones or, you know, all sorts of things. And what are your thoughts? What are, like, is it very much case specific or what do you go by or what have you found to be most effective? Okay. The evidence is that if you weigh yourself just once a day at the same time of day, that probably helps you to stay on track. Um, so, as you say, there are some people who shouldn't weigh themselves. There are some pe some people can use it as information and say, okay, so I'm on track today, or I'm not on track today, or um, maybe I ate something really salty yesterday, so I've got some fluid retention today. And they can just use the information rationally to help them plan their eating. Some people just get completely obsessed with it, and um, they get emotionally. Um, drained by it and those people shouldn't weigh themselves daily uh, ideally just because it just becomes too traumatic for them in which case maybe just once a week something like that um, or if you're not even ready to do that you can focus on what we call non-scale victories um, which is just changing your habits and setting a goal for yourself that you know should result in weight loss but not actually worrying too much about whether it does or not just in the short term so if you can just commit to um, eating more fruits and veggies or going for longer walks or exercising more regularly or getting enough sleep or, or anything like that. And then just achieving those goals and not worrying in the short term whether it's actually having an effect. Because as long as you choose something that should work, um, it should work. That's the whole point. Um, so there are some people who should even just abandon the scales altogether and just worry about, you know, eat to be well nourished, exercise to be fit, um, sleep to feel rested and, and not worry about the numbers. You, you don't have to. I love that. I think that's really wise. The last three things that's you said nice. there in particular I, that really stood out. That it's like, wow, that's so universal and, you know, relevant to everyone. 
and, yeah. and just to, and just to pull out some universal kind of truths here. Now you can tell me if I'm gone wrong or not in this, but just to kind of summarize. So big things like from takeaways and obviously things are personalized. That's a huge message I've got that things are very case specific to each person. So everyone listening who's interested in weight loss, it's going to be case specific. But broad brush things, which I got from what you said was number one, kind of focus on plant based foods because they're naturally higher in fiber and lower in calories and they're high in water. Um, if you're interested in time restricting eating, that has been there's evidence to show that that's effective, but only up to eight hours. Um, exercise definitely helps, but typically only in a 24 hour window. It's not like you'll get the benefit to your metabolism, your resting metabolic rate in a 24 hour cycle. It won't like if I exercise today, next week, I won't get the benefit to my resting metabolic rate. It's only going to be relevant in a 24 hour window. I don't know if I got that right. What else do we got in terms of summary here, Steve? Now? Yeah, energy density to try to consume foods that are lower in energy density to try to focus on the whole plant foods rather than being nuts and seeds, but more on kind of, you know, the kind of potatoes, sweet potatoes, starchy veg, berries, fruits, um, grains, lentils, beans, all these typically will be under 500 calories per pound, as opposed to if you move into nuts, you're talking kind of 1800 to 2000 calories per pound. So the more you can keep it in lower energy density, the more it's going to fill you up while providing you with less calories. And then a calorie is not a calorie because all calories, like, you know, a huge amount of people, as you said, do follow the kind of calorie counting calories, but ultimately a calorie is not a all calories are not equal. A calorie of, of uh, you know, carrots versus a calorie of ice cream are very different, as we said, and your body kind of deals with them differently. Epigenetics, so, I love that one. I love epigenetics, yeah. And one like, like obviously weight loss is, a lot of people are looking for weight loss and you can lose weight just eating butter, you know, if you, calorie in, calorie out, or you could lose weight on cocaine, but you're not going to get healthy. So it's, it, I think the trick here is how can you lose weight and gain health at the same time? And I think all roads probably come back to what you were saying, trying to eat as much plant foods as you can. And it's not an all or nothing thing because, you know, and and weight seems to change over life cycle. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about like perimenopause and menopause and even particularly in women, I'm just very curious, like, and even the cycle within a monthly cycle, does weight change? Like, you know, the way say, for example, a woman was, was weighing themselves every day at different times of the month, do, is their weight going to change depending on their cycle? Yes, it, it probably will. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, most of that is fluid retention, to be fair. So in the perimenopausal stage, um, or premenstrual stage rather, um, women tend to retain fluid more. So they tend to naturally weigh more. Um, I actually knew someone once who um, had a collection of fluid around her heart um, and um, every month her heart got into trouble because it was being squeezed by extra fluid. So that's wow. a, a genuine thing. Yeah, she was fine. She had to have an operation, but she was fine. Um, but yeah, definitely fluid retention and appetite as well. I mean, just about any woman who's ever been premenstrual uh, will talk to you about carb day. Um, there's just um, a, a relationship between um, fertility and carbohydrates. Um, so that's why, for example, metformin, which is a diabetes medication, is also very good for polycystic ovaries, which is all to do with your period. It's because carbohydrates and periods are very, very linked. And it's, again, complex. Um, but yeah, absolutely. If a woman ever says... Um, I have a carb couple of days before my period. Um, and of course, this tends to get prolonged as you head towards the menopause because the, the premenstrual phase tends to last longer. Um, you can have a carb week very easily. And obviously, we recommend carbs at um, the healthy, uh, the, the happy shape club. Um, 
but not those kind of carbs. Um, you know, no one's ever going to be craving broccoli when they're premenstrual. It's, it's <laughs> going to be foot food. Uh, and that's the challenge. So, yeah, absolutely. You get genuine physiological cravings for um, stodgy comfort food when you're premenstrual or often perimenopausal. And it can be a real challenge because it's utterly compelling. Um, and it's it's very easy to go, well, you know, I'm, I'm craving bread. I, I'm craving even it could be, you know, sweet potatoes or, or potatoes, but just far too much of them. Um, and But it's my intuition and these things are fine. But it's just very easy to over, overeat them in those phases of life. So and, it's and a joke. How does someone, for someone who's listening who's perimenopausal and menopausal and is going, okay, this is great advice. Okay, I've got to eat lots of vegetables. I have movement. I do my best with movement. I prioritize sleep. And I kind of go like, so what do I do? Like, I'm still not like, how do I, you know, like those are nice, big, broad brush, overarching kind of themes and kind of foundational blocks. And I'm wondering like, are there other things for anyone who's, you know, perimenopausal and menopausal and going, I still want to lose weight. Are there any other tricks or what's going on here? Okay. Um, so I forget which ones you said they were already doing. Um, certainly getting enough sleep. Um, managing your stress is a big one because there's nothing like stress to um, change your hormones in favor of weight gain. Um, so try and manage your stress as much as possible. Um, drink plenty of water. Um, your, your body doesn't differentiate very well between hunger and thirst. So if you've eaten a meal fairly recently and you're thinking, well, hang on, I wouldn't expect to be hungry now, but I hear I am fancying some food. It could be that you're thirsty. So definitely worth trying um, to, to drink a, a big glass of water or, or whatever's um, suiting you in terms of drinks, but um, try and avoid drinking anything with calories in it. Cause that, um, um, can we talk about that? Actually, we haven't mentioned yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yet. Calories, drinking your calories. Drinking your calories, not a good idea. Um, because and what does that mean? What does that mean? What do you mean when you say, like, because water doesn't have calories, but... Water doesn't have calories in it. But if you drink fruit juice or sugary drinks or, or alcohol or anything like that, um, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about regulating your own food intake. Um, your brain will do that very effectively for you. Um, so to within 10, 20 calories a day. But if you drink... Say you, say you drink water and drinks without calories in them all day, um, then your, your body will be more likely to stick to that. Whereas if you eat, say, 200 solid calories, your body will go, ah, this person's just eaten 200 calories. Right, I need to make sure that I take that off the list for today. She's already done, or he or she has already done 200. So that means I've only got another 1,600, 1,800, however many to, to go. Um, and your body will adjust for that and make sure that you do it. If you drink 200 calories for breakfast, your body won't even notice. So you'll carry on like you would have anyway, plus the 200 calories. So that's the reason to not um, drink sugary drinks if you can avoid them and, and other things with calories in. And why I recommend fruit, but ideally not fruit juice because that has the same kind of effect. Mm. Um, but yeah, staying hydrated would be my other big tip. Don't drink your calories, but stay hydrated with and things like water or or um, black tea. Uh, we haven't mentioned green tea. Green tea is great um, because um, I, I think probably a lot of people listening will have heard of the fat binders out there, Orlistat or Ally. Those are, are drugs that you can have on prescription or you can buy from the pharmacist at a weaker strength um, where um, any fat that you eat kind of sticks to the drug in, instead of sticking to you so it goes straight through you. Um, green tea has the same chemical in it so if you drink green tea with your meals you'll naturally absorb less of the fat that you're eating so that's another good tip if you haven't tried that that's wow. a good tip good tip there was something else on that that in terms of drinking calories i was reading earlier that uh drinking two cups of water before a meal is meant to reduce your calorie intake by up to 20 percent. is that correct 
Okay, I haven't read the study they said up to 20%, but certainly reduces it for sure. Um, the study that I've read are a few years old now. Um, but yeah, absolutely, drinking, it, it's got to be a decent volume. I, I think two cups is the minimum, but yeah, a decent volume of water just before a meal. You will naturally eat less. I, I don't know the exact percentages, and I, I think there's probably been a few trials on this, and they've all come out with slightly different numbers, but you'll eat less. So yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Another, another myth just to ask often people will celebrate you know the old expression like eat like a king for breakfast eat like a prince for lunch and a pauper for dinner or maybe it's a queen and a whatever way anyway queen and a princess and a, <laughs> yeah 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 and a pauper just wondering is there any truth in kind of having a larger breakfast having a, a medium lunch and having a smaller dinner or is there anything you know and then in other traditional cultures they'll say have the main meal of the day when the sun is at its highest just wondering is there any truth to that or is there any again is it quite case specific or are there any broad brush strokes that are relevant to most people listening okay um can be true for, for some people. Um, certainly um, avoiding eating late at night um, is a good tip um, because you know your body's designed to be sleeping at night. It's not designed to be digesting food. So it, it um, makes metabolism a bit more difficult. Um, that's why we tend to see people who work night shifts tend to struggle with weight, even if they eat the same calories as somebody else. Um, it's the, the staying awake and eating when you should be asleep thing. It, it's not good for weight loss. Um, in terms of kings, princes and paupers, I think we should all eat like paupers all the time. Um, <laughs> like of, yeah, you just stick to, you know, because the kings and princes typically would eat the, the meats, the rich food, the oils, the fats, the refined sugars, you know, rich people food. Um, whereas the diet that's going to help you maintain your weight loss um, it is the, the beans, the legumes, the nuts, the seeds, the veggies, the fruits, um, the ones that... Uh, historically rich people look down on so in that sense we should all eat as paupers but yeah I, I think getting your energy in early in the day when you're going to be using it it's, um, probably makes a lot of sense I don't think the evidence is overwhelming um, but if you're looking at ways to you know tip the balance if you're doing everything else and you're thinking what else can I do to try and make a change here that would be certainly one thing you can try it might work for you it's a good idea to try it. Mm. Uh, one huge thing we haven't talked about, which this was kind of our own findings from our own happy shape, was that, uh, you know, remember when we had it calorie counting and then we kind of changed it and we just made it no calorie counting, just eating whole plant foods. And the only re and we said you could eat as much as we want. And the main reason was that was because we took out the oil. Oil was a huge kind of, we figured if we took out oil, the processed oils, that was going to reduce people's calorie intake. And it was really going to focus on whole plant foods. Like, could you talk about oil and oil and its role in weight management or weight loss and why cutting out oil might benefit someone who wants to lose weight? Yeah, cutting out oil um, is ideal, um, if you can. Um, I do like what we've said elsewhere um, sometime where, you know, if you need a teaspoon of oil, um, to put on your salad so so it's a form of dressing and a teaspoon of oil is going to make you eat a huge salad then please do it um, but oil in itself yeah it's a processed food so you know there's nothing wrong with olives olives are great whereas olive oil um, might have lots of healthful things in it healthful compounds and lots, lots of things that are good for you but it's got an awful lot of calories per teaspoon or per, per tablespoon uh, and it's very easy to overeat it because you can say oh well, that looks like about a teaspoon's worth um, on your plate and we're not very good at estimating so it's very easy to pour too much so it's just extremely easy to overeat if you use oil. So I'm not against a tiny amount here and there, again, if it's going to make you eat fruits and veggies more. Um, but as a general principle, I, I recommend avoiding it. I try and avoid it myself for those reasons. 
Brilliant. Good one. Okay, last question which I want to talk about is there's one thing which which we which we often talk about in terms of uh, happy shape is about environmental design, which sounds like a more architectural word, but it's more down to the principle that we are all the product of our environment, like where we live and the people we surround ourselves, we become a product of that. And, you know, when I think of the current food culture, which most of us live in nowadays, certainly in urban Western cities and countries, uh, processed foods are super prevalent. You know, in the UK, 55% of calories from what Dr. Allen was saying are ultra processed and about 50% in Ireland are ultra processed. And I'm just wondering, like in terms of environmental design, as in setting up our homes for success, like and because, you know, the way like even my wife, she works in Google and they have a they have a snack drawer. They have a bunch of snack drawers. And what they did was they used to have the the super sweet stuff in the top shelf. And then they decided, OK, well, we want to have our team to be eating less of them. So they moved the super kind of processed foods down the bottom and they moved the healthiest stuff up the top because they realized that people were quite lazy and they just typically open the top shelf and they wouldn't bend down to the bottom ones. And I just wondered in terms of environmental design, like what are tips in terms of people's homes or people's lifestyles or, you know, because even, even when they looked at the blue zones, the longest living the people of the planet, they found out that these people, they didn't have healthier the genes. They just happened to be born in a country where, you know, the options available for them were really whole plant foods and movement was just on the agenda every single day and they ended up living long, healthy, happy lives. Whereas the average person who's born in a Western country, processed foods is kind of the norm and our lives seem to be more and more comfortable, less and less movement in them. So just now, I know I'm gone on a complete rant here. So sorry about that. I'm just asking because it's a huge precursor, but could you talk about environmental design and how important it is? And is that something that you kind of factor into people when they come into you or is it way too big a thing to address? I think it's the thing to address, actually, once you get beyond emotional eating, that's the thing. And it, um, it's about making the healthy choice the easy choice. So um, I, I try and say, you know, if it's about meal preparation, it depends what your problem is. So... Um, I often do workshops on this and I, I say to people, what's your obstacle here? And some people will say, well, I just don't know how to cook easy food. So, OK, well, go see the happy pair then. Um, people say they don't have the right equipment, so you might need to go out and buy things. Um, the big thing is what you keep in your house. Um, if you have a big treat cupboard stocked full of crisps or chocolate or whatever does it for you when you're stressed or hungry, um, then it's much more likely that you're going to eat it when you don't intend to. Uh, whereas if you keep it out of sight, out of mind, or preferably store it in the supermarket and only go and get it when you want it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, um, then that would be good. Um, but yeah, clear out the junk if you can. Now, it's, it's often difficult. People live in families usually. They're all with flatmates. They don't tend to live in isolation. And it's very easy um, to... to grab other people's stuff uh, when you, you know, the mood takes you. I've even got a friend who says that she lives alone, but even she has a secret stash of chocolate that she hides from herself. That's for emergencies only. Um, we all do it. So clear out your cupboards. Um, if you've only got healthy food in, um, it's extremely likely that you're only going to eat healthy food and have things readily available that are very easy to eat. So for example, I've got a favorite brand of ready-made soups that I've always got a stock of. So, um, Say, for example, I'd had a crazy day today and um, I was thinking, my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm recording the podcast with a happy pair guys later on. Um, I've got to eat something really quick. It would be so simple for me to just grab a bar of chocolate and some crisps. Um, and I don't do that. But one of the reasons that I've made sure I don't do it is I've always got um, my favorite brand of healthy, ready-made soup um, in the cupboard. And I, I know I can just open it, 
put it in the microwave, don't tell people, because uh, I know you guys don't like microwaves, but in my busy life, it, it works. Um, and it's there in three minutes and it's done and I don't have to worry. So it's about having easy meals available for when either you don't have time or the cravings hit or something like that. And then that leads on to things like batch cooking. So making sure that you've always got um, healthy prepared food in your freezer or your fridge that, that you've made yourself when you've been feeling in the mood to do it. Um, so that when the crisis comes, you're prepared. I, th I think this is all about just being prepared. So having the right equipment, having meals available at short notice, getting rid of the junk, because if it's there, you will eat it. Um, and just generally accepting that life happens and um, it's easier to manage if you're prepared. Brilliant. Good advice. Really great yeah, advice. the old scout metaphor, which is prepare to fail. Yeah. Or, or, or <laughs> fail, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Woo! You know, Sergeant Dave. And I, I think that is really relevant <laughs> in the current, the current food culture which we live in. So, uh, yeah. But Sue, you're brilliant. You really are. So practical, so accessible and such, so many nuggets there. Yeah, genuinely. Genuine. Oh, you're uh, welcome. It, it comes from years and years of, of talking to patients about their problems. And you just learn that there are certain things, and we've covered them today, but there are certain things that crop up time and time again. And it's all the kind of things we've talked about. So, um, yeah, this is just my day job to me. This is what I spend my days doing. And it's, uh, it's fantastic. Brilliant. So, whole plant foods, uh, high in fiber, they're low in energy density, and they're high in water. So, focus on whole plant foods as much as you can. Obviously, sleep, you mentioned, was great because it improves the hormones or the hormones in terms of suppressing your appetite. Uh, drinking water, water before a meal helps reduce the amount of calories you're going to eat. Reducing stress. Uh, yeah, reducing stress and obviously exercise, which those like all those kind of sound like pretty basic kind of things, but it's the hard bit is actually applying them on a daily basis. So then it comes back down to environmental design. We become the product of our environment. And exactly as you said, try to have less junk food in your house and more of the healthy foods and uh, don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up. That's a wonderful way. I, I, I'm sensing that we're coming to the end now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If you're struggling with your weight, it's almost certainly not your fault. It's the food industry. It's our environment. It's a million adverts you see every day, subconsciously or consciously. Um, as I said at the beginning, there's more than 100 causes of weight loss, and almost all of them are beyond the control of most people. So number one, don't beat yourself up. Think about your internal conversation that you have with yourself and then think about what you would say to your best friend if your best friend was going through what you're going through now. If it was your best mate, you'd probably say, oh, come on, I've got your back. I'm here for you. I'll help you. I'll go get your healthy food. I'll make sure you clean your cupboards out. I'll clean your cupboards out for you. I'll cook you some food. And yet when it's you going through it, you tell yourself, oh, you're useless. Oh, you're pathetic. Oh, you can't do it. Oh, you've got no willpower. And that's not the conversation you need to have with yourself. You need to be your own best friend. Brilliant. Love that. Lovely way to end it. Lovely way. And if anyone wants to learn more, I guess we've got our Happy Shape Challenge, which is about helping people and holding their hand really and supporting them through the process because it really is down to community and support and actually doing the basics, which we just talked. So, yeah. So that, that's been great. So I really, really appreciate it. Fabulous. It's been so wonderful to see you guys again. It's been too long and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sue. You're Thanks, great. Sue. Yeah. We love you, Sue. That was super practical. I love chatting with Sue. And just a reminder for anyone listening, we have our Happy Shape Challenge. When is it starting, David? May the 30th. So it's four weeks. It's all about holding your hand and supporting you. As Sue said, there were some basic tactics in terms of eating plant-based, prioritizing sleep, moving more. It's a community. It's four weeks. We've had more than 10,000 people through this program before. 
it gets really, really good results. So, And is it run just by me and you, Dave? Or who no, it's it? run by Dr. Sue, Dietitian Rosie Martin and ourselves. Loads of delicious recipes, meal plans, shopping lists. It's all about holding, holding your hand and supporting you to reach your happy shape. When's it start? Uh, May the 30th. So there's details down below in the show notes. It costs... 79 euro We're discounted from 150 to 79 Because we were going to support people Bargain, bargain Buy now, buy now <laughs> Good one Steve Thanks <laughs> uh, But yeah So I hope you really enjoyed this podcast Dr. Sue is great And uh, Lovely yeah. practical advice That's accessible and available to all Yeah Very accessible So yeah uh, There's a link down below here In the show notes It's on happypair.e If you go to our website If you type in Happy Shape Challenge Happy Pair I'm sure it'll pop up On Google on the internet So uh, yeah Thanks a million. Thanks for listening. If you got this far, wishing you a wonderful day, sending lots of love, wishing... And thanks for listening. We really, really appreciate it because it's yeah. such... It's our, one of our favourite things to do is to do this podcast. Thanks to Shawnee Cahill and to Sarah Foster as well who are here. Thank you for putting up with us and for publishing and editing and organising and everything to do this podcast. So, uh, so we're going to go now. Bye. Bye, 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 b